So I'm reading from Psalms 119, 129 through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not follow your law. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, my friends. I am the gray-haired one. Uh, I am the elder of all elders. I'm not sure if that's good, but... (laughs) And, uh, yeah, my name is Jim Ellis. I've been accused of being 120 years old by uh, our 31-year-old pastor, but that is not true. I'm here to say I am 62, and if I was 120, I wouldn't look near as good as I do right now. So, uh, trust me. (laughs) So, but... I, I was in quite a, quite a paradox last Sunday when I was standing over here listening to John work on Psalm 100, and it hit me that he got five verses. And Psalm 119 was 176 verses, to be exact. And I thought, Jim Ellis, what were you thinking when you chose to preach on Psalm 119? And uh, what we're going to do, Sean and I have divided this psalm up. I'm going to look at it from one side, and next week Sean will, will uh, do the other. But just by way of introduction to Psalm uh, 119, this psalm is larger than 17 of the New Testament books, okay? It is larger than 14 of the Old Testament books, which means that it's almost half the Bible in one psalm. You've got to get a hold of that because it's like, I mean, that's a big psalm, and it's very important. And I would think if it's almost half the Bible, uh, then it deserves our attention. Because our preaching is gospel-centered, I want to summarize the New Testament's use of the Psalms quickly in two points. First, you need to understand that almost every type of Psalm is applied to Jesus. It's as if the book of Psalms is his own personal book because it expounds his mission in Psalm 78, and Matthew works on that Psalm. It describes his unjust suffering in Psalm 22. It talks about his obedience unto death in Psalm 40. And we see that commented on in Hebrews 10. And it proclaims his resurrection and messianic rule in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. The psalm teaches us about the gifts the victor pours out on those who are his, you and I. Our present and future salvation in Jesus becomes the lens through which we see forgiveness in Psalm 51. If we only had David's Psalm 51, we'd learn some things. But because of Jesus, because of his coming, because of what he's done for us, Psalm 51 explodes in its emphasis. We also see in Psalms a great deal in suffering while waiting on God's deliverance and God's work. And we learn from Psalm 23 that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, God is still with us. Secondly, the Psalms are applied to the identity and mission of those in Messiah. That's us. 
we use the words of the New Testament in Christ, but we are literally in Messiah and as his agents and ambassadors uh, through whom he works through his Holy Spirit today. A Christ-centered approach to the Psalms makes the Psalms applicable to our lives in ways that only through time do we get to understand. One more example, in, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13, uh, that scripture, the writer uses Psalm 95 to urge us to belief and obedience as we sojourn on this earth, as we spend time living the Christian life. What, what we see in Psalm, one ta- Psalm 119 is a love for the Word of God, which many, I think, myself included at times, are bewildered by and confused. Because do I really love the Word as much as the psalmist does? And I have to say at times, I don't. The psalmist loves the Word of God because it reveals God, it reveals Him, and it lays out for us the benefits to our living well, which can only be experienced as we walk within the book, as we spend time within this psalm and the book as a whole. If we could, I'd encourage you to put on a set of glasses uh, with one lens having an Old Testament focus and the other one having a Gospel or New Testament focus And when joined together, we can interpret the book of Psalms with a correct prescription and view. Because of our our redemption in Christ, we are in some respects like Israel, uh, a redeemed people in transit to the promised land. Now that's not language we use because it's much more Old Testament style, but that's what we are. We are a redeemed people like Israel, and we are sojourning. We are not here, but more than maybe 60, 70, some get 80 or 90 years. Peter says this of us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Psalm 119 um, is 176 verses, like we said. It's divided into 22 stanzas because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic that Israel would use to remember who God was. Each stanza begins with uh, a Hebrew alphabet letter, and all those stanzas, which we can't see in English, Begin, each verse begins with that same letter. The name Yahweh, Jehovah, appears multiple times, about 24 plus times in the psalm. Last week, Josh mentioned the importance of singing for gaining perspective and memorization. And uh, I wanted to tell you that. when I was in seminary, I called my best friend from seminary, who's uh, still a chaplain, and I said, hey, what songs did we sing when we learned the Hebrew alphabet or the Greek alphabet? Because that was the first step. When you had Hebrew 1, the first thing you learned was the Hebrew alphabet. When you had Greek 1, that's what you did. So I will not sing it for you, but we used Yankee Doodle for the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, anyway, <laughs> okay, I'm not singing it. Um, and then we used uh, the Burger King jingle for the Greek alphabet. 
you know, and whatever, alpha, I don't remember. I mean, you can have it your way. That was the key thought there. Um, and, and when we were in seminary, we were, a bunch of us were painting houses because you got to make money. You either worked at UPS or you worked painting houses, and I painted houses because, of course, the Coast Guard taught me how to paint. <laughs> Why not continue to paint? <laughs> and um, he and I and many of our seminary buddies, we'd be on the side of houses singing those jingles back and forth to each other. All right, let's do the Old Testament. Here you go. Yankee Doodle, Aleph, okay. And we'd do the Greek. Uh, and then as we progressed, we would carry huge clips of Hebrew words or Greek words on our ladders. So you'd put the ladder up, you'd get the paint bucket, and then you'd carry up all your Hebrew words, and you'd spend the day sweat running in your eyes. <laughs> What's that word? Oh, yeah, let's remember that word. And we would just do that. So songs do help us memorize <laughs> some things. Um, the grounds for the prayer, and that's what Psalm 119 is. It's a marvelous, large, huge prayer are found in the first two stanzas of the psalm. Uh, because what you see in verses 1 through 8 is you see that the Torah is held up as the source of blessing and right conduct. That's what the writer begins with. The Torah is held up as a source of blessing and right conduct. And the psalmist pledges in the next eight verses to dedicate himself to the law. He says, what must I do as a young man to, to, to keep the law? And then the prayer itself begins with Gimel. That's the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and that begins at verse 17. So Psalm 19, an elaborate prayer of praise for God, really for the sufficiency for his word. And what we see in the psalm is an individual who deeply was moved by God's love and who deeply loves the Lord their God and desires to follow his word and has a keen sense, we're going to see at the end of this psalm, of the lost because of what he knows about God's word. I call Psalm 119 a mirror psalm, and that I think it's a psalm that we could take and hold up and look into and evaluate our maturity and our desire for the word. I was reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, and as it continues, Paul's looking at when Christ will return. And my encouragement to you and to myself is, I believe that as we grow to appreciate and understand Scripture as the psalmist does, we will be able to see much more clearly what God expects of us, and we'll come to a deep understanding of just how sufficient God's word is for all life and godliness. And it's my hope that one day I and you would, would be able to sit, put paper, pen to paper, and write a psalm, something like this, as you reflect on God's uh, faithfulness and care for you. Now, as we go through this, I, I, um, I got a couple crazy um, illustrations that I'm going to use and uh, and I took one out, put one in, but because I'm looking for a way to stimulate perhaps your thought about the word. But we're going to work through these verses, Psalm 129 to 136. There should be the outline up here in a minute. Uh, we're going to look at the psalmist's life and, life and times. We're going to look at what I call the eight sides of Scripture. We're going to look at the qualities of Scripture and the benefits of Scripture. So let's jump into the first one, the psalmist's life and times. And I want to look at what the psalmist says about himself. And the first thing we learned that the psalmist says about himself 
is that he struggles with sin internally in verse 133. He says, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. He struggles like you and I do with the old man and the new man. He didn't know those terms at the time, but that's the struggle that he faces. And that struggle causes him to search and tighten his grip on God's word, which we see in those, in those verses. It's a common theme within, the, within Psalm 119 and the book of Psalms. Look over to verses uh, 9 through 11 of Psalm 119. We'll do a little moving, but not too much. So verse 9 through 11 of Psalm 119. And you'll notice on your Bibles that's bait. Bait is bet. B. Okay. So verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the psalmist is familiar with our struggles as we are with his and his struggle with sin. Secondly, we see in verse 134 that the psalmist struggles to live in an alien world. What, What we see in verse 134 is this, redeem me, he says, from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. If we studied this psalm and others, uh, and we looked at the history of Israel, we would find that the psalmist lives in a time of religious skepticism, not unlike the time we live. And what he sees in the people of Israel, and this perhaps maybe speaks to the church even more, is he sees people who are um, non-committal, I don't give a rip, whatever you say, that's your thing to people being very aggressive, very anti-God, to the point that he says in verse 95, that the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. So the psalmist lives in a tough place as he ministers to the temple, more than likely. He's more than likely a priest. And so as he interacts with the Israelites, he sees these people who don't give a rip and people who are anti-God. And don't you dare say anything to me about, about God. The last thing we see in the psalmist's uh, life and times is he has an urge to press on. I told some the elders a few, uh, a few months ago, and I guess our RC, that one of the things I want to do at 62 is I want to finish well. That's my goal. I want to finish well. I make the joke that, hey, if I drop dead teaching, wouldn't be such a bad way to go. <laughs> Hope not here today, but anyway. But uh, I was thinking something more exotic like Vietnam. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I, I want to finish well. Retirement is not a concept in Scripture. You don't retire. You just take your skills and you push and you press until the Lord says, okay, let's, let, let's go home. So here we see in him in verse 30, 133 is this concept of the urge to press on. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And again, let no iniquity get dominion over, over me. In Psalm, I'm sorry, in verse 44, we, we won't turn there. He says this, I will keep your law continually. And we also see in this psalm that this guy's a runner. He doesn't plod. He doesn't drag his feet because he says in verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. So he is a man 
who's deeply committed to the Word of God to the point that he's going to run and chase it to get it. I was, I was reminded as I read these verses of Paul's admonition to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says to Timothy, flee, and what he's talking about is flee from the love of money and unhealthy controversies. So, Timothy, don't get stuck in that with that church. But he says, pursue faith, love, endurance, righteousness, holiness. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. He says, Timothy, take hold of the eternal life that you were called to. That's what we are to do. We are to flee and we are to pursue. And that's the two options in the Bible. There's no middle ground when it comes to our walk with the Lord. So the eight sides of Scripture. Um, last week, John encouraged us uh, to look and to know the book. That was one of his big, big pushes and passions, which I'm like, yeah, buddy. Uh, and we're going to discover that the author of this, of, of this psalm, buddy, he knows the book and he loves it. And it's really a challenge to us who live in the modern world. The psalmist uses eight different synonyms, eight different words to describe Scripture. We live in an age of biblical illiteracy. Uh, It's really a pet peeve of mine because what you don't know, you can't enjoy. And when I hear people, I'm like, have you spent time here? Have you been working the word? Have you been working the book? Well, you know, I don't have time. Oh, okay. That's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And a friend of mine, George Guthrie, who teaches at Union University, a school I used to teach at, he believes that less than 10% of churches, he would say closer to five, teach their folks how to study the Bible. That's, that, and that's kind of his observation. And he also has done something very interesting at that school. For the last 15 or 20 years he's been there, when the incoming freshman class shows up, he gives them a 100-question basic Bible exam. Okay, well, 100 questions, like how many books in the Old Testament? How many books in the New Testament? Can you tell us what the four Gospels are? Do you know what the pastoral... So, basic things. And what he has found is less than 50% of the students can get 50 questions right. Now, and these are kids who've been raised in churches, who have spent a good many years listening to preachers and teachers and, and those things, and they can get less, less, than, less than 50 can get 50 right. Our desire at redemption is that's not true. Uh, we want to train you and uh, how to read and study the Bible. Our goal is to help the RCs, help that happen through the RCs. And as I think about studying Scripture, I think about marriage because I do a lot of marriage counseling for the church. And uh, studying Scripture is like having a good marriage. The better we know each other and make it our aim to know each other, the better marriage we're going to have. The discipline of getting to know each other and, 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 and have uh, a, a good relationship. Many problems I see in marriage counseling are based on lack of, lack of knowledge, which leads to poor skills. Early in the, uh, I should say, up to the courting, pro- up to the marriage process, everybody's in love, and he's going to be fine. When I ask, tell me one thing you'd like to change about your future husband, I get the glaze. Oh, he's just wonderful. And I'm like, I've known him for three weeks, and I can tell you six things that I got, but <laughs> only kidding. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'm not going there. But uh, so, I mean, so 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 we see this, and it leads to poor skills, and. Um, <laughs> Good marital skills do not come naturally, much to the dismay of many, many people. Um, 
50% of the couples I know and you know, uh, at least ones I'm, I'm, I'm working with now, have not seen healthy communication and conflict resolution, so they have no concept of how to do it. When I asked, did your parents ever argue? Oh, I don't have two parents. Okay, that's one problem. Um, or, yeah, they never did argue. I'm like, no way. No, we'd hear them go in the bathroom. It got real loud. But when they came out, they go, we're fine. No. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, um, <laughs> and when I suggest to young couples, not some, not all, that you read a book a year on marriage, I get that same blank stare. Like, do you want me to read a book on marriage? <laughs> I do. One a year. I don't like to read. I don't care. <laughs> read a book. <laughs> I could give a rip if you don't like to read. Go read the book. I mean, you got to be kidding me. That's nuts. But I want to live in harmony. It ain't going to happen. But <laughs> so too, many of us don't have the skills to study the Bible. The, the official word discipline is called hermeneutics, big word. And it basically means learning how to read and study the Bible. Uh, because people don't know how to do that, <coughs> excuse me, it's led to what's called the flat Bible syndrome. You can look it up on Google later on. It means that the Bible is boring, it's not applicable, and not life-giving. If we believed it was applicable, exciting, and life-giving, we wouldn't be struggling with morning devotions or taking the book with you to work or, you know, when you go to lunch, I'm going to read a few chapters. It's, I hear constantly, I just, man, I, I'm lucky if I get two days in a week. So the, life has, so the Bible has become boring, not applicable, and not life-giving. You all know the passage in Genesis 3, two, yeah, 2 and 3, I'm sorry, 2, <coughs> that's used in many marriage ceremonies. And it, what happens is Adam has spent all this time, you know, naming critters and stuff like that. I think he realizes that when the last critter goes by, well, that's it. What about me? I'm, he never says that, but I think there's that, that's going on in his mind. And what happens is we know God fall, makes him fall asleep, takes a rib out of a man, creates a woman. Here's the quote from Genesis. It says this. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken out of man. And I wrote in my notes, definitely a yawner. <laughs> oh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. <laughs> okay. When I do weddings, uh, and sometimes I tell brides this or husbands this, but Sometimes I don't, just because I'm into for the shock factor. Um, I deliver what I believe is a good hermeneutic, a good in- interpretation of that scripture, which clearly shows Adam's wonder and delight for the partner the Lord has created for him. After naming all these critters, Adam stands back when he wakes up, and he goes, what a set of bones. Whoa, Lord, where did she, what, this is for me? I mean, he's not sitting there going, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You'll be called woman because you were taken out of me. I don't think so. I think, I don't know if Adam did high fives, but I mean, he's doing something in there that is just not, thank you, Lord. <laughs> um, anyway, I won't go any more than that. Okay, so um, <laughs> because I, cause I know when I stand with couples and I've spent five or six weeks counseling, yeah, they're not going real pious. So thank you, Jesus. It's like, whoa, this is the day, man. We're getting hitched and... But anyway, <laughs> what can I tell you? So that's what happens. So, okay. So let's look at those seven of eight synonyms for Scripture, which helps us understand um, uh, this, the, uh, what Scripture is and what it means to this psalmist and uh, what it means to us. They should help us to see and remember the relationship that we have with the Lord God through Jesus 
and remind us of the depth and importance the written word needs to be to us for our enjoyment and growth. So, I was going to ask one of Vince's kids, but they're not here right now, to define the word synonym last week. So I asked one of his daughters, I said, can you do that for me? And she goes, you mean cinnamon? I'm, no, no. So I didn't do that. Anyway, <laughs> so a synonym, you who are teachers and those of us who aren't because we look it up, is merely a word or phrase that means nearly the same as another word or phrase in the, in the same language. So, so we're going to look at what the psalmist and how the psalmist describes the scripture in this passage. Uh, and some of them have a little more technical stuff with them, and I'll share that. Other ones, you just read it and you got it. And we're going to start at the top of the psalm, what, or the scripture 129, and work our way through. The first synonym the psalmist uses is the word testimonies. In verse 129, he says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. It's interesting. Israel was told... Uh, in the early part of the Old Testament, to take the book of the law, right, probably Genesis the, and the first five books, and put it beside the covenant. It could have been just the first Ten Commandments since, 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 since that was early on. So put it next to the Ark of the Covenant. And in Deuteronomy 31.26, the writer Moses says that it may be there for a witness against you. Very interesting, because Israel had not done well in those early years. So it's going to be a witness against you. The Torah, the law, the book, the scripture would be a reminder of the high standards and frank warnings of God. Because the word is faithful and true, the psalmist says, man, my soul is going to keep them. So here's one of my crazy applications, okay? For you who are single, still dating, courting, whatever framework you want to put it in, what, what difference do you think it would make if you bought the testimony with you on a date? <laughs> he picks you up, and what do you got? A Bible this big, only because I wear bifocals. But anyway, um, this is how big. You get in the car and go, where are we going tonight? And you go for dinner, boom, there goes the Bible. You go to the movie, sits on your lap. Everywhere you go, the testimony is with you. I think it would definitely make a difference on some of the things that happen, you know, that could happen, whatever the words are. So, so I just think that's a crazy application, but I think it's true. I mean, because we, 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 we go out and we leave this home. Oh, yeah, forget about this. <laughs> so um, just a thought. You can take it for what it's worth. I hope it's worth a lot. So verse 130, uh, we, and we're going to see the word, word. And this means basically it's the most general of all the synonyms he uses, and it's God's truth in any form. Stated, promised, or commanded. So in one, verse 130, we see the unfolding of your words. Word gives light, and it imparts understanding to the simple. So it's whatever. God's truth come from, comes from in any form, commanded, promised, uh, or stated. The third one is the word commandments. In verse 131, he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. The idea here is this word emphasizes the flat, straight authority God has to say things to you. That's wrong and that's right. There's no gray in the issue. And it strikes me that when I read Jesus' comments in Luke, he says this. He goes, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You expect blessing and disobedience? 
You expect, you expect that things are going to be okay when you ignore God? That's a wrong expectation, my friends, and I think we've all experienced that and know it well. In verse 133, we see the word promise. The writer says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Promise is pretty simple. A promise is you telling someone or God telling you that he will definitely do what he said he's going to do. And it's going to happen either in the present or the future. As I looked at that, I'm I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 31.6 where God says to Israel, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Flat out, that's the promise. When we look at Psalm 23... Verse 1, I shall not be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Promise. When we look at John 14, 15, Jesus says this, excuse me, I will send another counselor, and the concept in the Greek is just like me, to be with you forever. I'm going to say this, and I don't mean it in a a negative way. The Holy Spirit is one step better than Jesus. Oh, hang on, (laughs) don't throw anything. Because Jesus, 33 years, Okay? 12 men, maybe 72, big influence. But when he promises the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to give you another counselor just like me. And the good news, he's going to be with you forever. You can't go away from him. If you've, made a, if, if you've come to Christ, God has led you, drawn you, and you made a commitment, you wonder where those feelings and emotions of guilt come from. <laughs> it's knocking on your head. <laughs> that, wasn't right, that wasn't the right thing to do. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's indwelling you and he's counseling you whether you like it or not. The next one, the fifth one, is the word precepts in verse 134. The writer says, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. The concept there is a little different. It's a unique word. It has a military context or a context of an overseer. And it's a person who's responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. The word points to particular instructions of the Lord as one who cares about detail. Listen to Jesus. Therefore, he says in Luke 6.46, do not be anxious about anything. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But what? But seek first his kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and All these things will be added unto you. You want to see detail? (laughs) God's got detail like you and I have never seen the hairs on our head. The next one is the word statutes. In verse 135, he says, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. This word speaks of the binding force and uh, permanence of Scripture. It's as if the laws, and they are, are engraved and inscribed on our hearts. That's where the statutes of God are. The last one in this text is the word for Torah. You know that law. Uh, It's the chief of all terms used used for Scripture. The verb of this word means teach or direct. Therefore, coming from God, Torah means both law and revelation. It can be used of a single command, of the whole body of the law, of the, uh, the whole Old Testament. It can be used of the whole Bible. And it reminds us of this fact, that revelation is not simply for interest, but for obedience. 
so that revelation is not simply for interest. Man, I like reading these stories. But it is for, uh, I'm sorry, therefore that, uh, I lost my quote. Oh, yeah. It's not simply for interest, but for obedience. That as we understand the book, as it's revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, through our reading, there's only one choice. I'll back up. There's two. Obey or disobey. <laughs> Your pick. There's, again, not a middle, middle ground. The last one that's not included in this um, text, if you'll turn over to verses 160 and 164, is often translated in the ESV, righteous rules. Sometimes you'll see it translated as the word ordinances. So in 160, we see this. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And down to 164, Here's a standard for you. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. What number are you on? Only kidding. <laughs> uh, but that's, it. that's what the psalmist says. Seven times a day, I stop and praise you for your righteous rules. The, the concept behind this is that these are judgments or decisions of the all-wise judge, God, about human, common human situations. The judgment reveals our duties and responsibilities and Scripture then becomes a standard for given, given for fair dealings between man and man. That's what he's talking about. In Exodus 21, we see a list of how to deal with slaves. You know, we, you know at six years, at the end of six years, then they're, then they're released. It's the a jubilee. At the end of 50 years, which Israel never got to, the jubilee year was everything was going to go back to everybody the way it came and the way it started. There's laws about restitution. There's laws about social justice, lying, accidental killings. We learn there about the cities of refuge that God establishes when someone kills someone by mistake through an accident. They have a place to go because they were because it was an accidental crime. And now what happens in Scripture is Jesus takes these ordinances. Jesus takes the sum total of the things we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to start preaching about pretty quickly, and says this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus does just after this is he raises the bar really high because he speaks about anger, lust, divorce, retaliation, and he says this, even if you think about it, you're guilty of it. You don't have to worry about being adulterous. <laughs> you get a few thoughts going, uh-uh, yeah, be careful. <laughs> I mean, you want to uh, get angry? Be very, very careful. So Jesus takes these and raises the bar and says, man, the standard's much higher than just not doing those actions. Every reference in the scripture, in this scripture, refers back to its author. Uh, the the uh, it's interesting that that that, wor- that the word for Torah or scripture appears almost in every verse, and every verse from seventeen to one seventy six is a prayer of affirmation addressed to God. 
This love is based on two things. One is on a personal relationship. The psalmist truly loves his God, but it's also based on the fact that the, study, that the psalmist studies the Word. Our study is designed to refresh us, inform us, and nourish us. Unfortunately, it does not do that for all. Because it's tough having devotions more than two times a week when you're really busy. So it's a concern of mine, and I know of yours too. So the, the next two points, one is the qualities ascribed to, to a Scripture. Those words we just looked at are formal. Some of them are declarative. Some of them perhaps get into your face. But what do they mean to us in relationship with God? In Psalm 119, there are three predominant themes. Uh, I'm going to say this different. There are two, and I'm going to show you a third because it's, it's not there, but it's underlying. But there are three, three predominant themes, and the first one is this. The first theme is how wonderful and delightful Scripture is. Look at verse uh, one. 29, he says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. If you'll go back to uh, verse 14 of Psalm 119, 14 through through 16, let me show you his response to the word uh, of God in verse 14 through 16. He says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So the, so the word of God is wonderful. It's great. And one of the main reasons it is is because these things, the precepts, commandments, they give us lanes that we're going to run down. They are guardrails. And I would say many, my guardrails got some pretty big dents. <laughs> okay, Lord, I'll get back in the center of the lane here. But, I mean, but that's what they're there for, to help us w- to run the race that God has laid out for us. Um, the, and, and, and the second uh, quality is this. Deeper than wonderful and delight is love. Look at verse 132. He says, turn to me, the psalmist to God, and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. It is on account of God that we love the writings because he has given them to us. They reveal himself to us. We know his name. We know his character. We know he is trustworthy. And I have to ask this question here. I I wrote down, do you ever pant after the word of God? Do you remember that one that, that he says there, I open my mouth and pant? Because I long for your commandments. Is that how much we love God's word? That, man, I got to get the book. I got to read some scripture. Just a question for, for you and I. We learn from the book of Hebrews that in these last days, he, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. So now we have the entire revelation. We have the living word and the spoken word. So it is finished. We have the book before us. It is good to systematically chew God's word through your life. The last um, quality of, of, of Scripture is found in um, verse 161. So I'm going to have you turn there for a minute. Let me talk about it for a minute. Um, if Scripture is wonderful and attractive, if it's loving and gracious, then we need to remember that the reason why it is is because it's combined with strength. What God said, He does. What God's going to do, He will do. And as the voice of God, Scripture is awesome. Verse 161, the writer says, 
Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Uh, I spent a lot of years in the military, and I have to tell you that when we would, we would get, to meet, get together for meetings with our captain or our admiral, um, even generals in the Marine Corps, uh, everybody would be sitting in a room, you know, hacking around, wait, you know, just kind of you know, waiting. And as soon as the general got to the door, you would hear, attention on deck. Everybody stands. Shut up. <laughs> the general's here. You don't go, hey, man with the three stars, what's shaking? Good to see you, man. Can I polish those for you? Uh-uh, ain't going to happen. And it's the same thing with the psalmist. What happens? His heart stands out of reverence, out of respect for the word of God. And, you know, maybe we should stand as we even read. I mean, we do it here in the morning. Maybe you should stand and read it at home. That would be very interesting. Probably wouldn't fall asleep. You could stand with your Bible. might work well. Anyway, okay. Um, so as we understand that, we, we understand that, hey, the word is, uh, is attractive, it's loving, but it's got great strength. Where have you experienced this strength? I mean, we just spent a couple weeks in Colorado teaching at 9,500 feet. Ah, I, can, I can see God up there, especially when it's 70 degrees. I really see him well. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> or I spent many years at sea, and it's 70, 80-foot seas. I mean, I'll tell you, scary, but you want to see some power? You want to see some big waves, the power of God. You might have heard some good sermons where you go back and you go, that proclamation just knocked me on my, on my rear end. <laughs> that was great. I don't know where you've seen it, but I want to show you one more verse. Uh, look over to one, uh, verse 120. It's right next door, at least in my Bible. It's big enough, it's next to it. But verse 120, and I want to give you kind of a literal, my literal translation of this verse after we read it. It says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I'm not sure if this is a real translation, but here's what I want to say. Uh, the strength and power of God should make the hairs on our arms stand up. We should be going, whoa, oh, Lord, man, I'm getting some turkey skin, chicken skin, goosebumps, whatever you call it. But when I consider the power of God, I need to be impacted. And if you're not, hmm, then you need to, I think, jump and get into the Word some more. Let's talk about the benefits of Scripture as we close in Psalm 119. And the first one is found in uh, verse 130. The writer says, The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Uh, when I was in Iraq in 2003 with, uh, with a group of uh, Marines, a big air group, uh, we lost a helicopter which means we lost Marines or those riding on it a week for the first four or five weeks of the war. Uh, one night I was scheduled to lead a Bible study, a Wednesday night study, in our chapel tent, and I was at the command center. And as I walked out of the command center about 6.30, we had a haboob. Now, you don't have hab- what you have in Phoenix. Yeah, it's a lot going on, but you ain't seen haboob unless you've been in Iraq and it's 500 feet in the air and it's brown. And I mean, I took pictures of a helicopter one picture, I could see it. The next picture, it was gone. And I, had, I didn't change where I was standing. And as I walked to the chapel about a mile and a half away, that haboob was a picture of where I was with the Lord. I'm thinking, I got nothing to say to these, whoever's going to be there, the Marines that night. I mean, absolutely nothing. I'd never been that way in my life, but it was a bad place. And as I walked into the chapel that night, one of the Marine pilots is a good friend of mine, he comes up, he says, hey, chaps, he goes, can I lead the study tonight? I really got something cooking. I just sat down. 
There ain't nothing else to say, man. It's just, sure. And Doug Lindemood took the word, and he unfolded it, and he gave me light and understanding that Jim did not have at that time in my life. I was overwhelmed with all these guys who were getting killed, and we're trying to deal with all this stuff. And he unfolded and gave light and understanding to a simple man such as I am. Third, uh, secondly, we know that uh, from Psalm 133, that Scripture uh, gives us stability. He says this, keep my steps steady. I'm sorry, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. The idea there, this, this, this happens as we cooperate with God in keeping his law and in doing what he says. Paul says, since you live by the Spirit, keep in step by the Spirit. That's pretty simple. Um, and so as we experience God, we will experience through his word the stability that we need in our lives. Lastly, in this great psalm and in these verses, we learned, we learned something that was very sobering. And I was very surprised to see this as I studied it. And it's, as the psalmist understands the wonderfulness of God and Scripture, and he experiences God's love and power and stability, he is sobered and brought to tears by the fact that many of his friends do not keep the law. Look at 136. He says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. An amazing thing, I think, from an Old Testament standpoint, to be looking at the souls of those people. We all think that's about a New Testament. You know, got to go out to evangelism. This psalmist was, was very concerned with those who did not keep the law. In our priestly role as a believer, we are called to be light in the darkness through our actions and through our words. We are called to provide understanding as we have been given understanding about the world in which we live in. We need to be ready to lead others through, I'm going to call them three, no, I'm sorry, four important worldview questions. A little different than maybe you've heard before. But these worldview questions are ones that people want to know about, even though it might take some time to get to them. The first one is this, where did I come from? Yeah, come on. I mean, yeah, where, is this, was I just chance that I just get thrown against the wall and I, there I was? I mean, where did I come from? Secondly, what the heck has gone wrong? What is going on with this world? And we as believers have a unique perspective. We have the truth to share. Thirdly, is there a solution? Yes, there is. And that's our responsibility to be ready. And then fourth, what is my purpose? Ah, that's a good talk to have with people. So we need to be ready as a priest, that's what we're called to be in the New Testament, to, bro- to provide understanding, understanding and give understanding. As Scripture and our knowledge of God provides us stability spiritually, personal, personally, relationally, and even professionally, that stability is a light that others will seek. And we need to be ready to be able to answer some of those, those, those questions. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, because I've been standing for the last 40 minutes. Anyway, and, uh, <laughs> and we're going to respond to the psalm. You're going to see uh, our response up there. I'm going to read two verses. If you'll respond back, I'll do like John Demeter did. He went like this. That will be the signal to come back with, uh, with that statement that God's word is sufficient. I'll pray, and then we'll prepare for the response. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. 
The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Please. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Please. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Please. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed tears, streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Let me pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for what it means to us. Thanks for the change that has brought in many of my friends' lives here. Father, we pray that you would continue to help us pursue you with a holy passion, that we would be ready to answer the questions that our friends and colleagues have about you and about their life. Lord, we pray as we respond now, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive communion. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.